0: And for those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, take your Bibles if you would and turn to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses together this morning. At least that is the plan. As we have noted, Paul is writing this letter to Christians in Rome. By and large, they are Gentile because of the history, Jews having been expelled from Rome and only recently allowed back in as the letter arrives. Uh, And yet, Paul's focus has been in his ministry and continues to be his own people. Ethnically, he is Jewish, he is an Israelite, and he is concerned for the Jewish nation. And so it is his... um, modus operandi. It is his pattern that when he goes into a new city to preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ the righteous, that he goes to the synagogue first, inevitably and invariably he is rejected and all the message is rejected and so then he goes on to the Gentiles. But his heart beats for his own people. And we see that very emphatically and clearly here in chapters 9, 10 and 11 of the book of Romans. Early on in the letter, he establishes the sinfulness of humanity. We are all lost and undone before a thrice holy God. We have no excuse. Uh, We have no um, righteousness of our own to offer. Uh, We cannot make it on our own. We are indeed unholy before a holy God. And then systematically, Paul walks us through the realities of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ culminating in a crescendo in chapter 8 where he just pours out praise to God for just some of the promises and the fulfillment of those promises to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet a question remains, and it's to that question or those questions that Paul turns his attention then in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul, that's great, and I appreciate that. But of all these promises that you have said, if they truly were to be fulfilled to the Jews as a nation, as I look around, I don't see a lot of Jews who have repented and confessed Jesus as Lord. I don't see a lot of Jews who believe that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is theirs, who have submitted to his Lordship in their lives. I'm not seeing it, Paul. I am not seeing a lot of Jews around. So what's going on then? What is the problem? And I think, as we have looked at, especially the last two weekends, last two Sundays, we can have the same sort of question in our minds. Why is it that when we look around the church or those that used to be here, they were brought up in the church, brought up in Christian homes, brought up in Christian school, were homeschooled. They, they were surrounded by the gospel, immersed in the gospel, and yet have abandoned the gospel and not done so just quietly, but have actually then taken up to mock the gospel and Christianity. Why do we see that? Why are those individuals no longer with us? Why is it that our society seems to be wholesale abandoning uh, allegiance to God and to his word? Why does it seem like every new piece of legislation, especially over the last few months here in Canada, is an open mockery against God's truth? Why does it seem like in the name of supposed love, our culture is hell-bent on destroying themselves? Why is it that they are abandoning the very thing and the only thing that can save them? And so it is to that question that Paul has turned his attention and now he wants to give us some hope. And I'm glad that you've stuck with me over these last couple of weeks because there's been hope, I hope, each sermon, but it has seemed a little bit uh, helpless and hopeless. When the sinfulness of man is highlighted, we then can ask, what hope do we have? Because we are fickle and we are hypocrites and we are sinners and we are flawed and we are rebels and and all of these things. So what hope do we have? And the hope comes now for us as Paul opens up chapter 11. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read chapter 11, the first 10 verses in your hearing this morning. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, absolutely not. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of God. So the first point then before us this morning is that God always saves a remnant. Where is the hope that we have? When it seems like the next generation is abandoning the truths of God's word, rejected relationship with him when it seems like our society has recast Christianity as something that it is not and recast what they believe as something that it is not either. When they hold out utopia to those who believe in this new world that only leads to further pain and destruction and depression and despair, where is their hope? The hope is that God always saves a remnant. Did God abandon his people in Egypt in slavery? No, he did not. Did God abandon his people when they abandoned him, did not believe in him, did not trust him, and wandered their way, grumbling and complaining all the way along through the wilderness for 40 years? Did God give up on his people? No, he did not. Did God abandon his people when Assyria came to the northern ten tribes and took them away into captivity? No, he did not. Did God abandon his people when Babylon, when the Chaldeans came through Nebuchadnezzar and took the remaining nation of Israel captive? Did he abandon them in the time of the Romans when Paul was writing and Nero is using Christians to light his garden parties? Has God abandoned his people? No, he has not. And so I pray that we would take hope this morning in this reality, that God never abandons his people and he always saves for himself a remnant. Sometimes that remnant is very small. Sometimes it's four people when God takes Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes it's eight people when God takes Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, onto an ark. Sometimes it's a small remnant, but it's always a remnant because God is in the the business of reconciliation and redemption is what he does and he has always done it and will always do it. And so God always saves for himself a remnant that is his. And so Paul is going to sort of extrapolate that, sort of expand on that in verses 1 through 6. So we see in the first part of verse 1 that God never rejects his own. I asked then, has God rejected his people, and Paul answers that by no means. And so as we have seen, God does not reject his people. He continually says to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So grandparents that are here this morning, that have been praying for their children and grandchildren for quite some time, has God abandoned you? No. Has God abandoned your child or grandchild if they are his? No. He has not. For parents who are praying for their children this morning and wondering, is my child ever going to believe as they ought? Are they going to see the truth and submit to it? Has God rejected them if they are his? No, he has not. God does not reject his people. He cannot reject his people. They are his. God cannot reject his people or will not reject his people even if his people attempt to reject him because he is God and we are not. Nothing can stop the purposes of God, not even our own unbelief and sinfulness. And thank God for that because if those things could, they would. Our God is greater than our rejection and our rebellion. And His grace is always greater than our sin, as Paul has said previously in the book of Romans. And so take hope this morning. Keep praying. Because God is the one who changes hearts. And Paul is an apt illustration of that. God intended to save Paul. And not even Paul's rejection of him, not even Paul's imprisonment of those that were followers of Jesus Christ, the righteous, could stop God's purposes for Paul. And so Paul can say emphatically, has God rejected his people? No. Well, that's great, Paul, but we need a little bit of proof. So Paul's going to offer at least two proofs. First, he goes back to history, or to himself, I should say, and Paul is proof of a remnant. Notice in the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. He says I myself am an Israelite so God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Exhibit A, Paul himself. I'm Jewish. And God did not reject me. God had every reason to reject me. God would have been completely just in giving me what I actually deserve. But because God is a God of grace and mercy and frequently gives us what we do not deserve, He gave Paul grace and Paul could say, here I am as a Jew speaking to Jews to say that God has not abandoned the Jewish people because he has not abandoned me. And we say, well, that's great for you, Paul. That's wonderful. What about others? So Paul turns to history in his second proof where he says God has always saved a remnant. Notice second part of verse two through verse four. We know the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, 18 and 19. In chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Elijah puts together this challenge with the prophets of Baal because the nation of Israel has seemingly wholesale given themselves over to idolatry not unlike our culture today. And so Elijah calls them out. And up they go on Mount Carmel in the northwestern corner of the nation of Israel. And there they build two altars. Now as we know, Baal and his uh Contemporary goddess Asherah or Ashtaroth uh, were the gods of the pagans and Baal is the god of thunder and lightning. He would be akin to what we know as Thor. And so in the challenge that is put before gods, it would be easy for Baal to call down fire from heaven. If the god of thunder and lightning can't call down a lightning bolt, then he's not much of a god of thunder and lightning. It's, no, it's not even that Elijah makes it hard on the false God. He makes it as easy as he possibly can for someone, someone who does not exist. And so the prophets of Baal, they wail and they scream and they, and they moan and they cut themselves. And Elijah mocks them, and hours go by and nothing happens. And then Elijah calls for some water, a scarce commodity at that time because of famine and drought in the land. It had not rained for three years. The water is brought, doused the altar three times. There is no question that this altar should not be flammable. And the God of heaven, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, brains down fire and brimstone For heaven, consumes the sacrifice and the altar itself, leaving no doubt in anybody's mind who the actual God is. And so Elijah, in a rush of adrenaline, no doubt, praising God for this massive outpouring of his visible presence and his visible power and authority, outruns Ahab's chariot to Jerusalem, believing that revival is coming to the nation of Israel wholesale and privately hoping that his arch nemesis Jezebel is finally going to get what's coming to her, and that is not what happens. And so Elijah runs, and he is in despair. And God meets him. And we read that passage during the liturgy. God says to Elijah twice, what are you doing here? And he brings to Elijah's attention three displays of natural power, of course, supernatural. God is not any of those, but then God is in the still small voice. And he asks Elijah again, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I'm the only one left. And of course, even if that was true, God doesn't need even Elijah to do what God's going to do because our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases, as the Psalmist says. But even if Elijah is the only one left, that's a majority when you have God and yet God comforts Elijah by saying, Elijah, what you believe is not true. There's at least 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. They may be quiet, they may not be vocal, but they are there. And so God has always saved a remnant, as we said off to the top, repeatedly throughout Israel's history and the church's history. There have been dark days in the nation of Israel's history and dark days in the history of the church. And people living in those days, no doubt said, could it possibly get any worse? And yet, as we find ourselves in dark days again, the reality is God has always saved a remnant. God has always saved a remnant human souls. And so in verses 5 and 6, we are again reminded and comforted by the fact that God is currently saving a remnant. Notice what Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. God will save those whom he intends to. That is a fact and we thank God for his amazing grace. His grace that is so overwhelming that when the human heart and soul and mind is confronted by it, it falls on its face in submission to it. There are individuals that have been chosen by God's grace throughout human history, and there are yet individuals chosen by God's grace in the future, many of whom live right here in Charlottetown and beyond, and we are confident as we stand here this morning not that we are good at public speaking or that we are excellent in discussion and debate or that our arguments are persuasive or that our politics are superior. No, we believe and trust in one thing and one thing alone, that the God of all grace is in the business of redemption and reconciliation and he will save the souls he intends to save. That is our hope. God says, Paul says, the power of the Holy Spirit There is a remnant chosen by grace. And as there was a remnant in Paul's day, so there is a remnant in ours. And then he reminds us about grace in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's not giving his resume in verse 2. He's not saying that I'm a child or a son of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin as if those are the things that make him savable before a thrice holy God. Don't misread what Paul is saying. Paul's very well aware of the reality that he does not deserve what God has currently given him and will give him in glory. Paul knows, as we have said numerous times, and even when we was going through the book of Acts, it is very likely that as Paul spoke in churches, especially in the area in Judea, There were individuals there who had lost family members because of him. Paul's well aware that all that he has is the grace of God. None of this is based on his works. Thanks be to God. If it is based on works, then grace wouldn't be grace. And let me just say a quick word. There is a tendency for the remnant to be full of pride. There is a tendency for those who have been recipients of God's grace to be full of pride because of that. This is something that Paul is going to address for the rest of chapter 11. He's going to let the Gentiles know, if God did what he did to the nation of Israel, why do you think that you are above that judgment yourselves? Do not get high on yourselves only because of the grace of God. Do not forget that the only reason you are a part of the remnant is because of God's grace. It has nothing to do with you. We need to be very, very careful that as the days grow darker and the philosophies become more destructive, that we do not ever get an us versus them mentality because the reality is, if we are anything, we are only it by God's grace and his grace alone. Do not ever believe that your salvation is based on works. That leads to pride, that leads to a sense of I'm better than you, I'm better certainly than them, and that is never the case. It is all by God's grace. So God always saves a remnant, thanks be to him for that reality. But notice then in verses 7 through 10, God must act to save a remnant. Apart from the activity of God, a remnant would not be saved. If God were not God, then we would have reason to lose hope. But since God is God, we have great reason to hope. And So as more and more individuals seemingly reject Christianity, as more and more individuals seek to form a utopian future based on very, very, very bad ideas, we can lose hope. But the reality is God is always at work and we thank him for the work that he does or we ought to every day. So notice in the first part of verse seven, the reality that we always fail. What then, Paul says? If this is true, if there's always been a remnant, then what do we make of that? Here's the facts. Paul doesn't pull any punches. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel attempted by their good works to gain what can only be gained by grace, and therefore they didn't gain it. So Israel, by and large, as a majority, as a nation, rejected their Jewish Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, and so they are in the predicament and the situation that they are currently in. They failed, and yet notice in the second place, God always succeeds. The elect obtained it. God will save all those whom he intends to. There are no exceptions to that. God is doing his work and will do his work. And so whether it's the nation of Israel, those within it, or whether it is those of the Gentile nation, whatever our ethnicity, whatever our background, whether our socioeconomic status, whatever language we speak, God's grace is extended to those to whom he extends it, and that grace will be responded to in faith. This is the hope that we have, that our hope is, again, is not in our ability to please God, our ability to be obedient, our ability to be holy and righteous and perfect, our ability to get it right. We have no such ability. Our only hope is in God. And wherever we fail and Israel fails, God succeeds. And everyone here this morning and watching online who is a believer in Jesus Christ is evidence of that. That God succeeds. If it was up to us, we would lose it. We would never attain it. We are dishonest and hypocritical and sinful and rebellious. And yet God is ever faithful. And then notice the last part of verse 7 all the way through 10. We are lost without God's mercy, but the rest... Paul says, were hardened as it is written, combination of Isaiah and Deuteronomy. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says in Psalm 69, or part thereof, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It is God's prerogative to allow certain individuals to do what they want to do, and every individual ever born wants to sin. And so God allows people that freedom. And they use that freedom for themselves in sinfulness, rebellion, and refusal to submit to him. This is a reality. It is an unfortunate reality, but it is a reality. And so without God's mercy, we are, we are lost and undone. We look around and we can think that we're better than other people. We're more moral than other people. And yet, we know that that is simply not the case. That is not the truth. And thanks be to God for his mercy. But as we close this morning, notice God is acting to save a remnant. This is where we began and this is where we will finish. Notice again verse 2a. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Go back with me if you would. Chapter 8 and verse 29. Paul's already introduced this reality. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is acting to save a remnant. God is in the business of reconciliation and redemption. He is one who is long-suffering and gracious, merciful and kind, gentle and good. And he is reaching out to individuals and sharing with them who he is, And they are responding in faith and in repentance, overwhelmed by his goodness and grace and majesty and glory. God is acting to save a remnant, and we thank him for that. What a beautiful reality it is that God is at work in our lives. So what do we do with this? Grace Baptist, those that are watching online and here this morning, the greatest thing that we can do is pray. I know there are times that we feel if we just had the right book, if we just had the right article, if we could just share the right blog post, if we could just share the right clip from the right sermon, if we could just, if we could only, then that individual that we've been praying for and has been on our heart and mind has been breaking our hearts, child, grandchild, friend, coworker, fellow student, whoever that might be, That somehow, if we just, and the reality is that God alone can transform a heart that he made and only the power of the Holy Spirit can give second life to an individual that he gave first life to. God alone transforms the human heart. God alone changes the human mind. God alone causes someone to be born again. Only the one who gives life can give life. And so the greatest thing that we can do is hopefully the thing that we have been doing, and that is to pray. Do we need to speak? Yes. Do we need to share those articles and blog posts and sermons and Bible verses? Absolutely. But our hope is not in our persuasive arguments, and our hope is not in our perfection, and the life that we have modeled in front of those that we have loved. No, our only hope is the grace of God. It's the only hope for us and it's the only hope for them. And so we need to pray. Allow me to do so this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and our hearts are heavy with individuals that no note immediately spring to mind that have rejected you. And yet Father, we know that they have heard the truth. We know because we've shared the truth with them and we continue to do so. We try to do it winsomely and with wisdom so as not to get in an arguments or to break relationships. We have tried to show love as best we can, but we have been imperfect in that. We have not shared when we have ought to have shared and we have not kept silent when we have ought to have done that. Father, we are imperfect and yet we have hope. And this is not a false hope or sort of grasping at straws, but this is a very real hope, Father, because our hope is in you, the one who transforms hearts and lives, the one who has called all things into existence and can call a dead heart into existence, the one that can change a stony heart into a heart of flesh, a one that we have sung about this morning who can turn bones, a valley of dry bones into armies. Father, you are the one who regenerates. You are the one who shows grace and mercy and love and kindness and caring and compassion. And you will have grace upon those whom you will have grace. And Father, when you reveal yourself to an individual and all of your glory and majesty and goodness and graciousness and gentleness and mercy and compassion, Father, it is so overwhelming that the only response recorded in scripture and in our own experience is to submit to you as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so Father, we pray that for everyone we know and for everyone we don't who does not yet worship you. That is our only hope. That is our only salvation. That is the only way that we can have life and life more abundant and free. Whether we are bound in our sinfulness We think that our ingenuity and our talents and our gifts and our money will be able to buy us into utopia, into the life that we want. And yet father, the only true path to holiness and happiness, to joy, peace, contentment is through relationship with the one who made us. And that is you our gracious and long suffering and patient and kind heavenly father. We pray that you would do the work that only you can in the hearts and lives of those, Father, we believe that you intend to save. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.